Hi, this is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I hope you're well, and that today finds you clinging to Jesus and depending on Him like you never have before. This is the final episode in the series titled, Choose Your Jesus Wisely, which is based on the second book I wrote, False Christian Gods, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. That book can be purchased on Amazon.com. If you found this Choose Your Jesus Wisely series of value, there's a five-video series you can find on the Doug Hooley Ministries YouTube channel. It complements the book and this podcast uh, series. The videos are short. They range from about two and a half minutes to a little over ten minutes long. Anyway, if you got the time, you might give those videos a viewing. Most of them were shot during a very hot and dry summer around three years ago where Angela and I live. I just watched the videos again for the first time in a couple years. It's interesting to see things like the black cow in the background, which was born on the day that I had my first heart attack. Uh, I think they named it Eeyore because it was <laughs> born under a dark cloud. And then like the cat in the last video named Buttercup, recently mysteriously disappeared along with a couple other cats in our neighborhood. We suspect a cougar got her. We've had several sightings here over the years around this time of year. Anyway, I have a number of YouTube videos on that channel, ones that complement this podcast series among them. Well, like I said, this is the last episode in this series. My plan is to take the summer off from producing more podcasts and start back up this coming fall. If you're new to the Called Out Cafe, this is episode number 62 that I've produced. So there's a lot of content available if you're interested in other things I've taught on. This summer might be a perfect time to catch up on the first two series that are available. The first one is based on the first book I wrote titled Watch. That book is based on Jesus' own teaching regarding his second coming to this earth. And then the second series is titled The Biblical Worldview of the Spirit Realm. That is incredibly important teaching if you want to understand the world that we're living in and what's going on around us in light of what the Bible has to say about the other created realm that we normally can't observe with our senses. Lord willing, if all goes according to my plans, <laughs> when I return in the fall, the next series will be based on the book that I've been working on for the last few years called Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. I might yet do a short special edition podcast to elaborate on and preview what that book will be about. I think it's the most important work that I've ever done even if I do say so myself. It's paradigm shifting. It's standing outside of our current culture that we're, you know, of the church that we're all a part of and taking a look at it again with fresh eyes from the outside, looking at the Bible uh, about what it has to say on the church with new fresh eyes looking at Scripture. What I talk about can result in the kind of freedom that you would expect from the authentic good news, which is the gospel. I look so forward to returning and talking about it. Like I say, Lord willing. Again, a reminder, 
if you want to join me again in the fall, please click on the follow function of whatever podcast platform you're using or set it to do an automatic download of when I publish a new one. Or you can follow me on the Doug Hooley Ministries Facebook page and I'll send something out when a new episode is released. Finally, if you want to support what I'm doing on the Called Out Cafe, all that what I would ask that you do is to subscribe to the podcast and like click like once you've listened to it, of course, only if you liked it, and consider sharing the podcast with those that you believe could benefit from it. These things are the only forms of advertisement that I have, and I'm told that they make a difference for one's exposure, especially when you share the podcast with others. I really appreciate your doing so. I'm always very encouraged when the listenership numbers go up, but all of that is in God's hands. If what I'm writing and saying is helping out even one brother or sister to know Jesus better and his ecclesia better, it's worth doing what I'm doing. But now, allow me to tell you a story. This is an allegory based on everything else that I've been talking about in this series. So today is quite different than the preceding episodes. Well, two great temples stand close to each other. When the conditions are right, you can sometimes overhear the people talking at the other temple. To the casual observer, the two places of worship appear almost identical. However, one has been constructed by humans and is made from wood, hay, and stubble. It was finished with a thin veneer of plaster and whitewashed. Like a Hollywood set, people did their best to make it look like the real thing, which is the temple across the street, which was constructed not by human hands, but by the hands of God Almighty. The one known as the High and Exalted Lord God is reported to reign from the throne room at the top of the stairs in the temple with the plaster facade on the left. The temple on the right is the temple of the God of the Bible. There are many steps that lead to the top of both temples where the throne rooms are located. The climb to the top takes a lifetime no matter when you started. The temple of the Lord God sits in the middle of a wide plaza. The most popular of celebrities stand on its steps and call out to passerbys to join them. The priests at this temple love the fact that local sports celebrities are always found among those who find their way to the temple. Keeping it relevant a well-rehearsed band is playing next to the espresso kiosk where treats are always free for the taking. It's a happy, friendly, and festive atmosphere. Smiles, handshakes, and hugs provide a great distraction from what the attendees normally experience in their daily lives. You wouldn't guess the pain and the emptiness that people were experiencing on the inside the tragedies they've endured during the week, and the unanswered questions that they have about God and about life. None of this will be addressed here at this temple. This is no place to ask challenging questions. Bright, shiny, and happy 
is the preferred way to attend the temple, as if to demonstrate the benefits of pledging your loyalty to the Lord God. Success at this temple is measured in the number of people on the steps, the amount of money donated, and new converts to following the Lord God. The other temple is located down a narrow path. This trail was only made for a few to travel. At the entryway to the path, a bright light that comes out of nowhere illuminates a skillfully hand-carved wooden sign, a sign obviously carved by a master craftsman. The beautiful white oak wood sign was carved away, leaving a horizontal raised arrow in the middle of it, which has been painted scarlet. It points down the path towards a gate. The words carved into the sign below the red arrow read, The Way, the Truth, and the Life. The sign is ignored by most who walk by. To them, the words make no sense and look more like the blah blah, yada yada yada. At the far end of the narrow path is an equally narrow gate. Success is not measured at this temple. Everything that happens is a success, having all been carefully planned, scripted, foreseen, and declared before time began. No one may ascend the steps of either temple without first being declared justified, righteous, and saved. There are many reasons people find themselves at the foot of the stairs that lead up to the thrones, which sit at the tops of these two temples. Some come here because they seek to improve their lives. Some come because they are hurting and broken. Others come to fit in and find friends or a mate. Still, others come out of tradition, a sense of wanting to do what's right or guilt or family obligation. Then, some come because they know there's something more to life than what they've found so far, and they're searching for what that is. It's for these reasons and many more that initially cause people to search out and find both temples. Cat, short for Katrina, was raised going to church with her family. She professes to be a Christian and has deeply ingrained beliefs from her youth that most closely align with the beliefs and culture of the temple of the Lord God. Her faith is very important to her, and it appears to be important to others who attempt God's temple also. Things really seem to be happening there. It's a growing assembly that appears to be alive and well thought of in the community. Well, it didn't take Kat long to be accustomed to attending there. She soon grew to love the people and count on them, not only as friends, but as brothers and sisters. To be declared righteous and saved, the priests of the Temple of God have only a few requirements. The new convert need only to acknowledge their sin, believe that Jesus, the Son of God, was raised from the dead and confess with their mouth that he is Lord. Daily, the priests ask the people who have gathered there to bow their heads, close their eyes, and then they ask for a show of hands or of those who are willing to take this step. They lead them in the, quote, sinner's prayer, unquote. 
This act, necessary for salvation, has been nicely packaged into a few repeatable sentences. It can be demonstrated on a chart containing a chasm between man and God, and a bridge that looks like a Roman cross that goes across this chasm. The words spoken follow a formula like a contractual incantation that one wouldn't want to get wrong, lest the spell not work. This is a simple system to learn. Any current believer may administer this, what sounds like an oath to the new convert. Once the words are recited, happy tears are shed as the new convert is now saved from eternal damnation. Congratulations, you're saved. You've said the correct words. Now let's get started on your journey. Per this sort of contract with God that they view the Bible to be, the new convert is now entitled to rise to their feet and begin their ascent up to the temple steps. Celebrated by those surrounding them, they take their first step. There are no crowds at the bottom of the steps of the temple of the God of the Bible. Although they initially may come for some of the same reasons, people here arrive only by appointment. It's the Holy Spirit that's illuminated the sign that leads down the narrow path. He's also responsible for giving anyone the ability to understand what's written on the sign. The high priest meets those who find their way to this temple at the bottom of the stairs. The high priest's name is Jesus. He recognizes their true belief that brought them to this door and sees their authentic repentance. He recognizes it because it's His Holy Spirit that gave those who would ascend the stairs to see His Father the ability to see the truth and believe it. The ability to believe or have faith is a gift of God. It's not an obligation of God. Jesus sees the weakness and the brokenness of the people who arrive at God's temple. Today, a young man named Joe has shown up at Jesus' door. Jesus bends down and hoists Joe over his shoulders. From the street, this act looks extremely humiliating. The priest awkwardly and painstakingly places what appears to be a perfectly functional adult across his shoulders. Why doesn't he just let him walk up himself? How embarrassing! Jesus turns and takes his first step up the steep stairway. Salvation rests on his shoulders alone and no one else's. No one may take one step towards his Father without him. Those who ascend the steps of the Temple of God pause on the lower steps and call out to passers-by to follow them up the stairs. Not wanting to leave anyone behind, they are sincere in their pleas. Cat wishes for others what she has found herself. She becomes profoundly concerned for the lost who've not found their way to the temple. But witnessing to others does not come naturally, so she attended a class on how to talk to others about the Lord God. She and her classmates were not disappointed. 
They learned some marketing techniques that have been proven to land new converts. They question those who dare to draw near the temple steps. Have you heard of the four spiritual laws? They then produce a pamphlet that contains everything one needs to know to be convinced to follow the Lord God. Other faithful converts use an alternative scheme and produce a diagram showing the great chasm between them and God. This simple illustration, they're told, is so well thought out that it will overcome all doubt of the existence of the Lord God, and that God is the one true God, and that the Bible is a historically trustworthy document and authoritative over all humans. This diagram is so good that it explains that every other religion is false. This drawing is so clever that it informs one that the postmodern moral relativism that they've been brought up on is a lie and convinces them that all the voices in their life that say God isn't real are wrong. Somehow, this simple diagram shows that there exists a spiritual world that can't be seen or proven where God resides, that life will go on after death despite what scientists say, and that the only way to experience eternal life is by believing in God's Son. What an ingenious diagram it is that can be sketched out on the back of a napkin that addresses all of these issues so thoroughly. The priests of God have confirmed the extreme importance of spreading the good news to the faithful followers of God since almost immediately after they converted. It's all about spreading the gospel. It's the Great Commission, after all. God has left the eternal fate of our fellow humans in humans' hands. One day, since the marketing technique she had learned still just didn't feel right, Kat searched her Bible for the term Great Commission, and she couldn't find it. Surprised, she read all the letters of Paul, thinking if spreading the gospel was of such great importance, he would have given comprehensive instructions to lay people on the topic. She already knew that Jesus told the eleven original disciples to go out to the world and spread the gospel but wondered what the instruction to the rest of his church was. The only thing Cat could find was Paul's instructions to his protege, Timothy, to be ready to proclaim the gospel always. Paul also spoke of himself having the personal commission from Jesus to do so, but there was no mention from him in the letters he wrote to the people who made up the various churches that it was also their mission to spread the gospel in the way that Paul was called to do. In light of how much emphasis the priests of the Lord God placed on spreading the gospel, all this seems strange to Cat. She thought about the book of Revelation. She had a recollection that Jesus himself had some things to say to his churches in that book. She reasoned, surely when Jesus came back to reveal the things to Apostle John, over 60 years after he ascended to heaven, that if it was all about spreading the gospel, Jesus would emphasize the importance of such a mission. Well, it was tough to understand much of what she was reading in Revelation, but what she was sure of is that besides an angel spreading the gospel towards the end of the book, nothing was mentioned anywhere else about spreading the gospel. She finally decided to just trust the priests. 
who must have their reasons for saying, it's all about spreading the gospel. While priests of the Lord God are talented at tying almost any scripture to whatever topic they want to preach about, many specifically tie the importance of proclaiming the good news of God to every passage of scripture they preach on. This is what they say, God is all-powerful, but he left the job of telling others about him for us to do. We are God's hands and feet on the earth. God will award the prestigious soul winner's crown to all who make disciples out of people for him. How gratifying it is when followers of God convince someone to follow them up the stairs. Another one rescued from the fire that God would have sentenced them to. Confused as to why more don't follow them, yet happy they were able to do their part to expand the kingdom of God, Cat and her friends continue up the stairs. At the temple next door, there is nothing left for those who belong to Jesus to do regarding spreading the gospel besides abiding in the good works that he appointed them to do. For some, those good works may eventually mean doing the work of an evangelist as they're used as a tool in the hand of God to call to himself those God has predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his Son. For many others, it won't mean anything of the sort although God may use any one of them in this way from time to time. Jesus will use some as parents that will daily demonstrate the reality of God to their children for years by showing them the sacrificial love of a parent while relying on Jesus. Others will show the reality of their God through their graceful suffering and reliance on their master Jesus, even to the point of death. There are many things to be done in God's kingdom that God himself will accomplish through those he chose for Jesus to carry up the steps. In their lifetime on earth, they will never be aware of most of how God used them. Certainly never aware to a point where they would think that they had anything to do with accomplishing an authentic good work on Jesus' behalf and be able to claim any credit for that work lest they may boast. As Jesus carried Joe up the stairs, he glanced back at the lost on the streets below. He knew that Joe is sad to leave some of his friends and family behind. He knew Joe was concerned about all of those who have not found their way to the narrow gate. Jesus asked him a question. Joe, do you trust me with them? There was only one answer. Joe bit his lower lip and produced half a smile. A tear streamed down his cheek as he silently nodded his head. Yes. Without pausing, Jesus shrugged his head towards the other temple, where all sorts of religious antics had been taking place. And he said, I mean seriously, how can anyone think I would ever leave the eternal salvation and well-being of anyone my Father has chosen to someone else. Jesus took another step and set Joe down on his feet so he could look him in the eye. My Holy Spirit is constantly advocating for me in the world, Joe. There is no 
better advocate than him. He is at the entrance of the narrow way, illuminating it, pointing the way to the truth, and calling all to come. Before time began, my father saw who would listen and choose the truth and come to me. He chose those who would choose me and elected them to eternal salvation. Few are chosen, Joe, but that's how you got here. When someone's appointed by my father to salvation, there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. My father saw you coming to me on this day all that time ago. He wrote it in his script, and now here we are. Pretty cool, huh? The tears were now streaming down Joe's speechless face. Priests of God and those they've taught sometimes comment, It's all about service. Remember, you're created by God to do good works, and faith without works is dead. Sermon after sermon attempts to place the burden of serving the local community and the world square on the shoulders of the believer in God. They say to each other, God is all-powerful, but he's chosen to tie his own hands and depend on us. The priests of God continually attempt to convince their followers to act like the new creatures that they are supposed to be. It's an attempt to impose a form of godliness on others when the actual power of God is not present. Cat knows the importance of service, but is a little confused as to why there is such an emphasis placed on it at the temple when it seems such things should come naturally. Also, she knows many who have never drawn close to the temple that outdo those who say it's all about service. She has friends in the Rotary Club who say that the foundation has spent over $3 billion on life-changing, sustainable projects over the past hundred years. She has other friends in the Lions Club that are on call seven days a week, 24 hours a day, to recover and transport eye tissue from those who die in accidents so it can be used to save the sight of others. Yet, other friends spend many hours each month volunteering for her county's search and rescue program. They're called out in any weather, at any time, to search for the lost, sometimes putting their very lives in jeopardy. It seemed to Cat that if all she wanted to do is serve, there are plenty of other ways to do so. Christians don't corner the market on service. There are numerous non-GUD-centered clubs, foundations, and organizations in Cat's community that take care of the homeless, the sick, and those in need. How is her temple any different? Why not just join one of those organizations whose purpose it is to serve the community if service is what it's all about? She wondered if this was just another way to market the Lord good. Cat was recently asked to sit on a committee that would award money collected at the temple to people to travel to Sierra Leone to feed and clothe the poor. People would be awarded the money based on the good works that they've previously done. Cat felt a little strange judging people's good works. She wondered about all the people that may be doing good works in secret that only God would know about. 
Then she started thinking about the cost involved in sending people to Africa and transporting used clothing there. She thought about all the good that money could do locally with the homeless population. She thought about her friend that couldn't even afford to pay her rent this month. When she spoke to one of the priests about it, he said, Well, the important thing is to show the community what our church is doing throughout the world. She knew how proud the priest was of the reputation of the temple in the community. As the priests of God call on Kat and her friends to go back down the stairs and serve the community they came from, they remind them, it's our good works that the community sees us doing that will attract them to our temple to worship the Lord God. It's up to us to carry on the work of God in his absence. The priests open the Bible and talk of the awful things that will happen to those who don't do their part. They always temper their statements by saying, But it's not the good that you will do that will save you from your sin, but your good works are an outward expression of who you've become. If you're a legitimate child of the Lord God, your actions should show it. Well, Kat wonders why it seems like the priests of God are constantly telling her what she should do to demonstrate that she's a follower of God. When at the same time, they're telling her that God will do things through her, and all she needs to do is abide in the Lord God. Confused, she makes her way back down to the street with the others. Others at the temple are asked to sweep off the stairs or find something else productive to do that will make the temple look good, like whitewashing it. Some are asked to be greeters to the temple, others to set up chairs, and yet others to serve in the nursery. Astonishingly, some priests of God are encouraging their followers to demonstrate their devotion to God in strange ways. They're telling them to make life harder on themselves than it already is. Some are seen getting down on all fours and ascending the staircase on their knees. It seems the harder they make it on themselves, the more self-righteous gratification they experience. Others around them admire their devotion to God, and thinking they've been taking the easy way to the top of the stairs, they join them on their knees. Yet others drop to their knees only because they don't want to stand out and be different. The priests of God announce a new series of messages on how to discover what your ministry is, and another one on how to know and use your gifts effectively. Cat attended a class on this subject once and is still experiencing confusion and guilt over not knowing what she should be doing based on her gifts, which she hasn't been able to identify using the system that was explained to her. Across the street, Jesus being aware that the one he is carrying is watching what's going on at the other temple, whispers, Yeah, don't let that stuff distract you. You don't have time for any of that. But the question comes anyway. Well, isn't it true that I was created to do good works, Jesus? Doesn't the Bible say that? Jesus sets Joe down on the step and unties a pouch off his belt. He loosens the string and opens it up towards Joe. Speaking of work, let's rest here a while, Joe. Would you like a fig? Joe reaches into the bag and smiles. 
Swallowing the remnants of a fig, Jesus finally answers, It's absolutely true. You were created to do great things. I have important stuff for you to do. But the fact is, you're doing good works on my behalf all the time, and you're not even aware of it. I bought you with my blood, Joe. You bear my name. You are an instrument in my hands that I use according to my purposes and my timing. Purposes that are so interwoven and timing so precise that I can't trust these things to anyone who isn't intricately familiar with my Father's plan. After all, it's His will that I want done. Just keep getting to know me. Trust me and count on me to use you. React to what I put in your path each day in a way you think best represents me. Keep being the person I made you to be. The things you think are most significant that you're doing may be of the utmost importance to me. Jesus turned and looked directly at Joe. The entire meaning of the scripture about being created for good works that you're talking about, which I hear misused all the time, is that the works you will do in your life on my behalf were determined by me before time began. Don't worry, Joe. I know what they are and how I will be using you. Jesus placed Joe back on his shoulders, adjusted his grip, and asked Joe if he's ready. Sure am, Jesus. Joe can't help but notice the sweat on Jesus' forehead and the scars on his hands. With that, Jesus takes his next step towards his father, who's waiting at the top of the stairs. The priests of God teach a concept called sanctification. Cat remembers listening to a series of messages explaining this whole concept over four different Sundays. She took copious notes. The priest said that salvation is a three-part process. First is the act of justification. This is when one is spiritually reborn and becomes entitled to eternal life. This happened at the bottom of the stairs when the new convert said the words and believed certain things. Next, sanctification is the process of climbing the stairs whereby those who are justified become increasingly well-behaved and conformed to the image of God. Now, this takes a lot of time, and no one can ever quite master it this side of death. Finally, glorification takes place when one dies. Glorification is when you are miraculously completely sanctified, behave perfectly, and can finally be in the presence of the Lord God Himself. Well, since you can never be good enough this side of death, according to this teaching, the priests of God believe you can't hear the message of the importance of not being naughty enough. <laughs> There's always something to feel convicted about, always some sin to work on to become more holy. Apparently, one can be partially holy or set apart for the Lord God. Some are more holy than others because they're not as naughty or don't engage in certain types of naughtiness. But since being only partially set apart for good makes you unusable by Him, 
because Gud hates naughtiness, it's a bit confusing to Cat. As a part of this teaching, followers of Gud are told that sin has no hold on them and they have the ability not to sin. So any naughtiness that they might engage in is completely their own fault. Gud has done his part and has left the rest of becoming sanctified in the hands of his followers. He cannot be held responsible. The priests explain that a major part of what life is about when you follow God is trying to behave yourself, because God wants you to be better behaved, even though he knows that while in your body, it's impossible for you to be well behaved. There are even certain forbidden words that must not be uttered, lest one incurs the gasps, stares, and judgment of others who will question one's very salvation if they're spoken, even when one strikes their thumb with a hammer. Isn't it just like the loving, wise Lord God to give you something to work on that He knows you can't do, so He can blame your failure on you? As some men make their way up the temple steps to see God, they can't help but strategically climb the steps in a way that allows them to better observe the backsides of the female adherents to the faith. They look away in guilt, take a couple more steps, and go right back to it, taking care that no one else will see. They eventually become convicted, turn around, and sit down. What is wrong with me? They say to themselves. The priests say sin is no longer supposed to have a hold on me, and I'm supposed to be increasingly holy, but this isn't any easier than it was when I was a teenager. The stairs of the temple of God are full of people having guilt-ridden thoughts about all sorts of sins. Cat still feels guilty about that one time when she didn't give 10% of the gross amount of her paycheck to the temple. Instead, she paid her tithe based on the net amount. She was sure it was God speaking through the priest directly to her three weeks later when he said, If you want a gross-sized blessing, well then tithe on the gross amount of your paycheck. If you only want a net-sized blessing, then tithe on the net amount. The thought of, how could I have short-changed God like that, has vexed Cat for months. While Cat sits lost in her guilt, some others confidently strut by her in self-righteousness. A legitimate sin that they should be sitting down on the steps thinking about. When one sin is discovered at the temple of the Lord God, A priest will ask them to confess it to the rest of those on the steps. Depending on what the sin is, they may be marked with a big S for sin on their front and back, indicating to everyone else that this person has failed, has been especially naughty in the sight of God, and should never be considered as temple leadership material in the future. The sins of pride, hypocrisy, and misleading others by preaching false doctrines do not qualify for the big red S at the temple of God. Those committing these sins are considered to have leadership potential. Across the way, still riding on the shoulders of Jesus, Joe has come to be in awe of him. By depending completely on him every step of the way up the stairs, He's come to know more about Jesus' infinite strength, his determination, and his wisdom. 
Rather than watching his own step and figuring out how to navigate his own way up the stairs, he's been focused on every move Jesus has made. He knows he could never adequately imitate him, but Jesus is his example. How much he's learned from him, even during his short trip up the stairs, rather than if he would have been focusing on his own issues and failures in his life and staying busy for good. He understands how God is truly in charge of his journey and that he was set apart for Jesus from the very moment Jesus chose him and purchased him. Still, from time to time, Joe's mind wanders from the journey he's on with his master, and he stealthily slides down off of Jesus' back to do things his way for a while. Even understanding that Jesus sees everything, Joe knowingly and intentionally engages in behaviors that he completely realizes Jesus does not like and would never want anyone bearing his name to do. Joe plays mind games with himself while engaging in these sins and to temporarily convince himself that what he's doing is no big deal. He turns his back on Jesus and looks for a place to hide to try and conceal his sin. He assumes Jesus has his back turned on him also or is so busy paying attention to something else to care about what Joe's trying to conceal. What utter shame Joe feels when he turns around and sees Jesus standing on the steps, just waiting for him, facing him, looking right at him. Joe knows Jesus saw the whole thing. He tries to avoid eye contact or looking at Jesus' nail-scarred hands. He knows what he did is the reason for those scars. He is sick in his stomach. His heart feels like it's pumping liquid shame. You know, I'm never surprised by anyone's sin, Jesus said quietly as he wraps a cloth around his middle. He invites Joe to sit down on the steps and remove his shoes and his socks. A little confused, Joe complies. You're part of my creation, Joe, and I know everyone so much better than they can ever know themselves. You know those things that aren't good for you to do in this life aren't being held against you by me or my father. No, I don't like watching you willingly do the things that are against my wishes. But I get who you are, the mechanics of how the human brain works, and what you're dealing with. Jesus reaches for a water basin that just happens to be on the step Joe was sitting on and places it at Joe's feet. What are you doing, Jesus? Joe exclaims. I'm washing your feet, Joe. No! Joe responded. Why would you do that? How embarrassing. I'll I'll wash my own feet. Please don't. Joe, I'll introduce you to my friend Peter someday. You're kind of reminding me of him. You have to let me clean your feet. You can't do it on your own. Just like I'm the one who had to cleanse you of your sins. And you couldn't do that either. People that insist on making themselves presentable to my father never make it up a single step of this temple. Remember, I didn't come to this earth to be served. I came to serve. I am the only one qualified to do this kind of thing. What? I can die on a cross for you 
but you won't allow me to wash your feet? Can you allow me to serve you, Joe? Joe sat with his mouth hanging open and his forehead scrunched, perplexed at what was going on as Jesus washed Joe's feet and continued to talk. It's the world you live in, Joe, that won't be so forgiving if they discover your sin. And the way my father designed things, you can be sure people will find out about them. I know how sorry you are, but even though you and I are totally good, because of the way the world works, there may still be a price in this life for you to pay. I know you don't want that, and I have something so much better in mind for you than your temporary self-indulgences. Come on, let's get going. Joe will never look at life the same way again. On the steps of the temple of the Lord God, the priests are encouraging people to make their prayers known to God. They say it's as though God's hands are tied until people speak their requests to Him. It's all about prayer. God will not act if He is not asked. Speak your desires and needs to Him if you have enough faith You'll have anything you want and join with others in prayer because it's as if one prayer is stacked on another until your request finally reaches the throne of the Lord God. Prayers are like rockets we send up to God. If you're not in your prayer closet at least an hour a day, it's no wonder why you're not seeing results. How is God supposed to take you seriously? The priests are full of advice on how to get your prayers to work. Like, you need to claim the covenant promises. You need to live by faith and count the things you're praying for as though they've already happened. You need to obey God in the small things. Do what He says and He will honor you. You need to get rid of the sin in your life first. You need to correct your thinking first. Negative thinking is negative faith. There is power in the tongue. Speak into being what you want. Speaking negatively into the universe is like casting a bad spell. And some priests suggest, along with your prayers, you might also want to consider not eating for a while. Based on what we read about others who fasted in the Bible, it seems the Lord God really takes one more seriously when one misses some meals and prays. God appears to be under more obligation to answer when one does not eat. A few other priests, especially ones that have their own television shows, say that prayer is more effective if you do things like first anoint yourself with miracle spring water or kneel on a paper prayer rug that they're happy to supply you with for the price of a love offering. Jesus and the young fellow on his back have been chatting back and forth throughout the long climb up the steps. I love it when you talk to me, Joe. It's a natural demonstration of how important I am to you and how you want to include me in your life. I listen to every word you say throughout the day with great interest. No one has to tell you to talk to me or how or when to do it because I'm real and alive to you. Joe responded, Is just talking to you the same as praying? Sure, Jesus replied. So many people try to make a formula out of it, but your entire life is a prayer, Joe. 
Those who my Father has given me are far too important for me to rely on their understanding and their needs and limited ability to communicate. I see everything you do and hear everything you say. I know your thoughts, your feelings, how tired you are, and the number of hairs on your head and your white blood cell count. I even understand the things that are bothering you that you're not able to speak about. When you say to yourself, what's wrong with me? I know the answer. I know the dark closets of your mind you keep things in that you visit now and then. All those things speak to me in addition to your prayers. My father knew all about you and your needs before he created Adam and Eve. Joe, I'm the one who searches hearts and minds. For example, I know, even though you haven't said anything aloud about it today, that you're worried about your mother not feeling well and that you're concerned she may have cancer and you feel bad about not being there with her right now. I want you to know that situation has had my father's full attention all along. He knows every molecule in your mother's body and has everything under control. It's all going to work out, Joe. Joe thought to himself that he couldn't imagine going through life any longer without Jesus. Jesus whispered just loud enough for Joe to hear, I love you too, Joe. Across the street came the words, I just can't believe in a God that would allow that. I am out of here. Those were the words spoken by a disgruntled follower of God. He had just heard the news of yet another shooting where 27 people had been killed in a church on Sunday morning. One of the priests quickly responded that, God is not responsible for evil. As if such things are out of God's control, he went on to say, Evil only occurs because of man's own sinful heart and the influence of Satan. The priests used this terrible incident to illustrate the need to pray harder and how the world needs good. He pointed out the good that comes out of such things is when the community comes together in times of tragedy. While Jesus may not be present, we have each other to rely on. Some others climbing the stairs of the temple under their own power were offended by what the Bible seems to say about sin that they were participating in. This was easily dealt with by finding priests who were willing to tell them that the Bible can be interpreted many different ways and what they were doing was in fact not sin at all. The priest said sex and living together outside of marriage was against the cultural practices of the time that that part of the Bible was written. But it's what's in your heart and not who is in your bed that really matters. A few disciples of God were sitting around discussing the return of Jesus, God's son, to this earth. They had heard that not everyone thinks that Jesus is going to sneak up on everyone one day and return like a thief in the night. Some people say that the Bible says that there will be signs that precede Jesus' coming and that his followers may have to endure some persecution prior to his return. The priests of God were there to quickly strike that notion down, not with scriptural evidence, but with reasoning. The God we know would never allow such things to happen to his followers. Where would the comfort, happy feelings, 
and hope be in all of that. There were even a few others who were not able to accept that the Bible says that there is only one way to salvation and that it only happens through Jesus. How could that apply to the good Muslim and Buddhist friends they have? Are they and their children really destined to burn in hell? What kind of a sick, self-centered God could allow that? And what about the people that have never heard of Jesus? Is it their fault they haven't? How could God punish them for their ignorance? Again, some of the priests of God were ready with answers and sermons that allowed them to reconcile their beliefs with what they were comfortable with. If God is anything, he is flexible. Cat tended to always err on the conservative, rule-following, strict moral code side of things. She had a long list of things she considered sin that she believed God would be offended by. And if anything, she was willing to add more things to her list if someone could show her a verse in the Bible that would justify it. She believes God cannot look upon sin and turns his back on one who is not living morally. To protect his holiness, God plugs his ears and hums loudly when people utter naughty words. The good cat believes in expects holy living, meaning perfect moral behavior, service to others, tithing, daily devotionals, daily prayer time, attending church, attending small group meetings, attending women's Bible studies, attending women's retreats, attending women's seminars, and attempting to win people over to follow God. She leads a guilt-ridden life, always wondering if she's done enough or if she's being good enough for good to not turn his back on her. If Joe has discovered anything in his ascent up the stairs, it was that the universe does not revolve around him. It revolves around Jesus. He has learned that Jesus is a real and unique individual being and is not just a concept of what God-man should be like. He's the one and only God in resurrected human form. Jesus, the divine expression of God who became flesh, is God in the only form that finite, physical human beings can begin to understand and relate to. Jesus is the unchangeable truth that sees everything as it is. The true Jesus is the Jesus that must be believed in. Joe knows that Jesus will not conform to the image of what Joe is comfortable with, but it's his own responsibility to seek and believe the truth of Jesus, no matter where it leads him or how it changes his preconceived images of who he thought Jesus was. The real, authentic Jesus is so much better than what Joe ever could have imagined him to be. Joe has come to realize that believing in Jesus is much more than what it simply sounds like. Believing implies knowing and understanding who or what you believe in. It's more than a full-time effort. It's allowed him to understand at least part of what will be taking place in eternity. It will take an eternity to get to know the true, infinite being called Jesus. In addition to weekly sermons and the expected personal devotions, there are weekly Bible studies that occur on the steps of the Temple of God. All these activities, of course, are centered on the Bible. On Sundays, 
it's expected that the priest giving the sermon, regardless of the passage of Scripture he's preaching on, will apply the Scripture to the lives of those present so that they may become both convicted and have a takeaway, personal nugget, for the week to dwell on. Try as they might, by mid-afternoon after the message, most weeks, many are unable to remember what the priest spoke about that morning. Many Sundays, as different Bible stories are discussed, the temple priest will draw a personal connection between the main character of the story and those he's teaching. These character studies are designed to help the listener with their own life. One week, regardless of what God is trying to communicate in the passage, (laughs) those listening to the sermon will be encouraged to be like the Apostle Paul. Another week, rather than seeing what God's accomplishing despite David, they're encouraged to take on the good characteristics of David. Other times, it's Job, Abraham, Moses, Samson, and Peter the listeners compared to and encouraged to be like. In this way, each week, you might say that the listener takes on the starring role in the Bible story being taught. Disciples of God may be encouraged to have a Paul in their life that they can look to as a mentor, like a life coach and a Timothy that they themselves can mentor. Paul's unique qualification of being called by Jesus to be his personal spokesperson doesn't seem to matter. Nor does it matter that Paul was given an exceptional mission in his life and that there's nothing in Scripture indicating his assignment was or is universal to all who are called Christians. As for devotionals and Bible studies, the priests have taught the devotees to use the SOAP, the SOAP method of study. SOAP stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. Participants are to read the scripture, make observations about it, apply it to their lives, and then pray, asking for God's help to put the application of scripture to work in their life. The Bible acts as sort of a personalized self-help guide. Soap always tends to leave a residue of something in the believer's life to do or feel guilty about, change their behavior, witness more, give more money, or go on a mission to Haiti and help the poor. Because the Bible is like a beautiful, multifaceted diamond that can be viewed from different perspectives, everyone's observations may be different, as will how it can be applied to everyone's life, but all interpretations are welcome and add value. Challenges to people's opinions may almost never occur. The fact that the human author and the ultimate author, God, had one intended true meaning to communicate in mind also doesn't seem to matter. Repetitive reading of a passage in the Bible is looked at as a preferred alternative to the work it takes to perform a sound study of Scripture. Multiple read-throughs help to clarify the personal meaning of the passage to everyone. Another alternative to studying a passage in the Bible to determine its meaning is to read a commentary in the margins of the study Bible. The truly devout may purchase a book to read what someone else thinks about a passage of Scripture. Some priests of God say it's not important to understand the Bible at all. Reading it is what's important. Then, through some sort of a mystical phenomenon, the Spirit of God will make clear what one needs to know when one needs to know it. You can count on a random verse from the Bible to pop into the mind of a believer just when they need it. And at that time, 
they'll understand its meaning, having never wasted any time on study. Since her youth, Kat's been encouraged to memorize Bible verses that are most meaningful to her. This is especially true of biblical promises. She's been taught that when God has promised something in His Word, He can be held accountable to keep His Word. All one needs to do is claim the promise. According to many priests of God, claiming God's promises found in Scripture is especially effective when coupled with praying for whatever their wish is in the name of Jesus. When this is done, one merely needs to add enough faith and whatever their desire is will come true. Unless they're not in right standing with God by having hidden sin in their lives, or they're holding something against a brother or sister, or they've not been paying their tithes, or something else like that. Coupling the SOAP method with journaling can be especially rewarding. Day by day, as the meaning of Scripture is reinterpreted and the application of that Scripture is personally customized to suit each individual, a new, unique translation of the Bible is gradually recorded in each person's journal. Rather than being the book containing what God wants us to know about Him and His plan for the universe starring Jesus, the Bible becomes a self-improvement guide starring the one who is doing the journaling. Ascending the steps of the temple of the one true God, Joe has learned that the less he focuses on his own life, here and now, the more he focuses on his master, Jesus, and eternity future, the less he has any need for a self-help guide. Joe's discovered that focusing on Jesus or centering his life on him means more than simply meditating on a mental image of him or praying that Jesus would make himself better known to Joe or use him. Focusing on Jesus is purposeful and takes determination to only accept authentic truth that comes through the only reliable source of truth, the Bible. Joe's been getting to know Jesus better through recognizing that the Bible is not a book about himself, but a book containing God's plan which stars his son, Jesus. He's discovered several hacks for getting the authentic truth contained in the Bible about who the real Jesus is. Not his parents' truth. Not his pastor's truth. Not Joe's own truth. But the authentic truth. God's truth. The hacks Joe uses aren't a part of any religious formula. When he has time to read the Bible... He does little more than use a common-sense approach to understand what others have written who lived in another culture, place, and time. There always seemed to be an underlying presence of a preoccupation with money around the temple of God. As the temple priests say, it's all about good stewardship. As a part of the weekly ceremony, a money collection is taken. Usually, someone would speak a little bit about what the money was going to and what an opportunity for being blessed it was to be able to give their money. Plates were passed around and people would give their money while music was playing. Sometimes, the priest would teach about giving money. Other times, a priest would have speakers come in and teach about it. 
They would talk about how giving money was like planting seeds in the kingdom of God. And the more you gave, the more money you could expect back from God, according to these rules of reciprocity. You can't outgive God, they would proclaim. Many members of the temple would sacrificially give, only to never see their ship come in in this lifetime. How confusing this was to some who wondered how many who are non-believers could be so wealthy without giving any of their money to God. At Christmas, the priests would spend an especially long time asking people to donate their money so the temple could turn around and give the money back to the community. The priests that oversaw the money kept books on who was giving and how much they gave. This was one way the priests could tell who was really invested in the temple and who was not. Although people who gave were never named, there was high public praise for those who were obedient and generous in their contributions. This usually took the form of the priests blowing the temple's horn when they would talk about the great things the temple had done with the money and how only those that gave made it possible. Sometimes the giving to the community would take the form of an open show. The media would be invited and a big lottery-style check would be handed over to the receiver right out in the open on the temple steps. If you want to know where someone's heart is, look at their checkbook. That was a common theme of money-related messages. Young families who were trying to make ends meet and provide food and clothing for their children either spent many Sundays feeling guilty when the plate would go by without adding to it, or they would give, finding themselves sacrificially giving and going into debt to give the recommended 10%. Most, at some time or another, had been taught that other areas of their lives should be adjusted so they could pay their tithes. It's God's way of keeping your household in balance. Kat always thought it sounded counterintuitive when she heard of fathers working many hours of overtime from their family and some stay-at-home mothers with small children ended up going to work just to give away 10% of their household income to keep God happy. Kat knew the temple had to pay the mortgage and the light bill and such. She also knew that many temple priests made their living off the offerings and always just assumed there was some sort of sound scriptural basis for the practice of charging people to provide spiritual guidance, which confusingly seemed like God would want people to have that for free. Cat was unclear how the Jews of the Old Testament and their obligation under the law to take 10% of their grain or increase in cattle herd to the temple in Jerusalem and present it to the priests there obligated the people at her temple to pay 10% of their income. Cat felt guilty when she thought about it being the same people who made their living off the offering, teaching about how important it is to give money to the temple. She knew she shouldn't have such suspicious thoughts. It's just she couldn't help but think of the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote a great deal of the New Testament, how he not only provided for himself by working a full-time job, but provided for others as well, all the while being responsible for taking the gospel throughout the civilized Western world of his day and planting churches. Jesus knew exactly what Joe was spending the money on that he gives him to steward. Joe's finances, too, had been seen and approved before time began. All of Joe's money belongs to Jesus. Jesus, considering Joe one of his priests, 
set apart for his service, put Joe and no one else in charge of what that money entrusted to him should be invested in and spent on. Each day Jesus sends Joe out into the world to do business for him and represent him. Joe carries with him the responsibility of using his master's money wisely and not handing it over to someone else to do it. Sometimes Joe's asked for some of his master's money to do what others believe are good works. Joe then assesses whether it's a good way to invest the money Jesus gave to him to steward or not. Through his study of the Bible, Joe is very knowledgeable on scriptures that pertain to giving money, living under the law, tithing, and paying professional Christians. What he does not do is set aside his responsibility by routinely and blindly in faith, handing over what's been entrusted to him and assume that it'll be handled wisely by someone else. When Joe hears of a legitimate need, he determines what he can give and gives in secret to the extent possible, not letting his left hand know what his right hand is doing. His giving is not because of the tax deduction, not because of guilt imposed during a sermon or a plate being passed, not because he wants others to take note of it, but only because it's what his master would have him do. Joe's goal is for there to be no one left for anyone to thank or recognize other than Jesus. Finally nearing the top, Kat was sitting alone on the temple steps with her Bible and her thoughts. She'd been thinking about many different things over the past few months regarding the temple. Last Sunday, during the worship portion of the ceremony, she felt like a complete hypocrite. She'd shown up there to worship God, but didn't feel like worshiping. In fact, she didn't feel like being there at all. At the urging of her brother, Joe, Kat had begun really studying her Bible about some of the things that had been bothering her. She didn't see where the Bible indicated that the life of a Christian is all about being a steward all about service, or doing good works, or all about spreading the gospel. In fact, the more she studied, the less justification she could find for many things that she had been participating in and supporting in her temple. It was appearing more to Cat that it was supposed to really be all about seeking Jesus. Cat's internal conversation went something like the following. What kind of a God could the Lord God possibly be? He created the universe, yet needs me to tell him what to do. I need to be his hands and feet because he's helpless without me. If my friends and I don't spread the gospel, he's going to allow everyone we don't talk to to be damned for eternity? Is it really about a marketing strategy designed to make the temple look good? so that we can draw people to Jesus? I'm serving on three committees, giving 10% of my money, attending church and small group, Bible study, and every women's retreat religiously. I've been on mission trips to Mexico and Haiti and serve meals at the mission every other week, and they still manage to make me feel like I should be doing more if I really want to be holy. Why did I ever think that every story in the Bible was somehow a story about me and how I could lead a more successful and abundant life? It looks to me like 
my life should be more focused on the future with Jesus and less about me now. Why do the priests avoid the topic of Jesus' return? Aren't they looking forward to it? How could the priests be so far off in what they're teaching? The Bible seems so clear on so many things when you study it. I don't feel holy. I never have. Honestly, I feel guilty. I've always felt guilty. I feel guilty about everything I don't do perfectly that the priests say I should do. I feel guilty about not knowing my spiritual gifts or what my mission is supposed to be. I feel guilty about supporting a place that I don't think is following the Bible. I feel guilty that the priest would sit in judgment of me even asking these questions. I feel like I must not be in right standing with God because I feel guilty. Cat's thoughts finally crossed over into words. And I don't find the Jesus I see in the Bible in any of this guilt. If this is Christianity, I must not be a Christian. Cat rose to her feet, and with tears in her eyes, she descended the steps of the temple and left without saying goodbye. Over the years, she'd heard every explanation from the priest for everything she was now leaving for in favor of truth. She'd talked enough to those she was leaving behind to know they disagreed with her, and they weren't going anywhere. When the appointed day came for the faithful followers of the Lord Good to climb the final step of the temple, they were always surprised at what they found. They were looking for rewards for their good works, soul winner crowns, mansions that were in proportion for all the things that they had done. They were looking to be put in charge of many things because of the things they were faithful with on the steps of the temple. They felt entitled to these things because God had told them they were entitled to them in the Bible. Didn't he? One by one, the faithful approached the throne of the Lord God. What shock and what confusion came over them the closer they drew to the throne. God did not appear with a rainbow over his head. His skin was not as burnished bronze, nor his eyes like flames of fire. He was not like dazzling lightning from the waist down. There were not fantastic creatures nor a multitude of angels surrounding his throne. Instead, the one who sat there was the image of the God that each of them had created. It was for each a perfect likeness of themselves. They'd entrusted their eternal future not to the God of the Bible, but to the temple priest's version of the God of the Bible. Yet, despite their deception, it wasn't the priest's fault. They had all heard exactly what they wanted to hear, and they each had created God in their own image. It happened with each of them. As they would draw near to God as he sat on the throne, he would start to look worried and then ask, You look distressed. Is everything okay? The answers had little variation, but usually they took the form of questions and went something like, What is this? What's going on? Are you God? How could that be? A typical response from God was, Yeah, sure, I'm God. I thought for sure you'd recognize me. 
You've been defining who I am for years and telling me what to do. So what's next? What do you want me to do? I suppose I should tell you that I can't do anything for you that you can't do for yourself. I never could. God would always start to dematerialize at this point. But before he would entirely disappear, leaving them alone, he would add, There's no further need to keep this up. There's no possible way for them to revive you now. You're dead. You're in hell, awaiting the one true God's judgment. And there are no second chances. Any reward you think you have coming, you've already received. Jesus and Joe finally reached the top of the stairs. The throne of God could be seen a short distance away. As Jesus set Joe to the ground to stand on his own feet, Joe's physical body slumped to the ground, dead. Joe was too awestruck to notice as he looked far below and saw the total distance they'd covered. You carried me all the way up here, Lord. How was that even possible? It's not the first time, Joe. What do you think I was carrying on my back through the streets of Jerusalem on my way to be crucified? Here is someone else I carried up the stairs some time ago. It was Joe's mother. She died of cancer 27 years earlier. It was one of what would be many sweet reunions. Now come on, Joe. I can't wait to introduce you to my father. He's been looking forward to meeting you face to face, literally, since before time began. Sometime after the introductions were complete, Jesus pulled Joe aside. Look, Joe, I have to head back down to the bottom of the stairs. I have another appointment waiting there for me. Jesus' smile grew wide. It's Katrina, your sister. Thank you so much for listening today. May God bless you in doing the work of believing in the one who he sent. May he make himself real and known to you. May he guide you and give you courage to seek his truth. May he give you the strength to live by it and the eyes to see him operating in your life. May he keep you alert and awake to what's going on around you and allow you to quickly identify deception and give you the wisdom to know how to deal with it when it's identified. May we both stand in the presence of the one, true, authentic Jesus of the Bible one day, and be known and loved by Him as His servants. Until then, enjoy your summer, and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com, or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.